That thing working? Can you hear me all right with that like that? Can you hear me? Does anybody wants to hear me? Does anybody really give a shit? All right. My name's Burns Brady and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Um, I want to thank the committee for asking me to be here. Uh, this is my own backyard, so I know many of you very well. I especially want to thank the Alateens for that wonderful bouquet that, that they left in my room. That was just something real special. And for the host committee, the, the gift of the, the meat and the crackers and the cheese and things like that. For a man who had a heart attack 12 weeks ago and can't eat any fat, I really thank you for putting that in the goddamn room. That's uh, it's all right. You're not supposed to know that I can't eat fat, and so I guess it's my choice with me and God to decide whether he can eat fat or not, right? But in any event, I... Uh, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for the courage that the committee had to begin this meeting, this conference, with this topic. Because some people feel that this is a topic that is best expressed somewhere else, like in medical meetings and things like that. Bill Wilson, if you'll recall, received his message from Abby Thatcher. Now, that message came down from uh, Carl Young through Rowan Hazard to Abby Thatcher to Bill Wilson to Bob Smith, and that's why we're here. Wilson had a real deep grasp of spirituality. He knew from the Oxford movement and a number of other movements of that day that he would need to clean house. He even had an in-depth idea about spirituality. He was going to change somewhat on how he was going to use that spirituality. But the one ingredient that was missing from Bill Wilson's insight into what was wrong with him was that he had a disease, and that turned his entire concept around. Now, what I see in the people I deal with is to turn around the entire concept of being a piece of crap. The shame of being dragged in here a moral leper or coming in here believing that we have some major mental illness which makes us different from other people. I was in Our Lady of Peace, the mental hospital in Louisville from 1964 to 1967, four times. Strapped down, IV fluid, straight jackets, padded cells, a whole bit due to amphetamine. My diagnosis was psychopathological, narcissistic, sociopathic personality disorder. <laughs> now, the fact is that they diagnosed my behavior, and when they gave me that diagnosis, I didn't have a bit of problem with what they diagnosed me at. I didn't know what my problem was, but I knew that's the way I acted, and I laid in the shame of that diagnosis, which was not inaccurate, based on my behavior. And Wilson had labored under many of those same deals, even to put him away because he was obviously going to die with a wet brain syndrome. And when Silkworth brought him the concept that he had a disease, the light came on in Bill Wilson's head. And today I know that it relieved him of a great deal of that misdiagnosis and a great deal of that shame and a great deal of those feelings of just being morally destitute and mentally ill. And he started his journey. And after cleaning house in that series of events that he did in a very short period of time, maybe a few hours to a few days, he had a major spiritual awakening and came to believe, wonder if I can stay sober, wonder if I can stay sober by helping another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. <coughs> Having a disease meant everything in the world to Bill Wilson. What I'm going to present you with tonight are expansions of what Dr. Selkworth talked about in his writings and in the doctor's opinion. Just what we've come to know over the years. 
that best answers irritable, restless, and discontented. That best answers where does the craving come from. That best answers what is this peculiar mental twist. Now, these speakers who will follow me are going to bring you their experience, strength, and hope, and that experience, strength, and hope is the solution to this disease. I'm going to talk to you about this disease, and they're going to talk to you about the solution. And to have an in-depth understanding and knowledge of that entire process, which is very practical if there's enough information. And those of us who have been in this program, I've been around for 17 years, I've come to know I respect your intelligence. I also am very much aware of your goofiness, but I certainly accept your intelligence and see it and know it's there. And this is the kind of stuff that people hang on to because for the first time there is some, there is some guts to this physical allergy and mental obsession. And I do not know that God in this program has ever shied away from the truth. We're not talking about the solution for this first hour. We're talking about an integral part of the problem. Silkworth wrote in his opinion, the physician, and this is Wilson's saying, this is what Wilson said right after Silkworth had written down what he had said in the first part of his uh, opinion, said, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Then there, I leave out the middle part of that paragraph and close when he says, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. He writes on the next page, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Silkworth wrote this in the middle 30s. Next paragraph down on this page, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. He then lists the types of alcoholics, and he says, All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is total abstinence. The other thing that concerned me a great deal after I'd been sober for a while and really had gotten into looking at what was going on is that we were making fewer and fewer 12-step calls. Now, the fact of the matter is this was due to treatment centers and other modalities, which I don't have a quarrel with, but the fact is even when I came in in the late 70s, the 12-step call was becoming a thing of the past. There are many of your speakers that will talk to you, and they grew up in an era where 12-step calls were absolutely the only way to get to the drunk most of the time. What was happening that I began to see is we weren't carrying the message that the seventh chapter in the twelfth step talks about. We were going in and we were sharing our experience, strength, and hope, assuming we stayed true to the pure picture of the twelfth step call. But the thing that we were leaving out that I kept running into time after time is people thought that, yeah, I got a disease, kind of cavalier, I got a disease, 
here was what Wilson said that was the message that, in his experience, was what made the thing begin to be real. After talking with the person you're working with, said, if you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. The key your mental twist. And finally, continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. He's basically saying, you people are going to die. You're going to die. You're hopeless. You are hopeless. Then he goes down and says, doctors won't talk to us about that because they really don't want to talk about the hopelessness of this problem. He said, but you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. The joy of AA is the rest of these speakers will talk about the solution. I'm going to talk about the physical aspects, the emotional aspects, and the societal aspects of the problem. A hopeless malady. The peculiar mental twist. Before I start the presentation, just as a break, I want to tell you an alcoholic joke. It has to do with the peculiar mental twist. I've always been fascinated by that, the peculiar mental twist. I wasn't quite sure what the hell that really meant until I was out in East Texas listening to a fellow who'd been sober about 80, about, he's been sober about 45 years. He was about 85 at the time. He was the voice of the conference and was a wonderful man. Nobody paid much attention to him. Everybody just talked the whole time he was talking, but I got on the front row because this guy was really sharp. He talked like he had a flat brainwave, just in a monotone, but he was really <laughs> sharp. And he tells this wonderful story, and this is the alcoholic story. At least it's this alcoholic story. The peculiar mental twist. Seems like this fellow was traveling East Texas, and he was running from town to town. He'd stay there every week. He was a traveling salesman. And each week when he'd check into that particular hotel, like the drawbridge inn, he'd work Cincinnati, and he'd work Covington and Newport and whatnot, only he's in East Texas. And they, when he'd come in every night, they knew he was going to get drunk, so they'd set him up like they always did, and he'd get drunk and do whatever they had it set up to do. One night he'd left this little town where he was on a Friday night and went home. He had all this fun he could tolerate. So he joined AA. Next time he came back through and was swinging through this little town, said he checked into the motel, they set him up like they always set him up, and he went out like they thought, like he always did, and they thought he was going out to get drunk. Well, he's going to an AA meeting. When he comes back in, they got him set up, he opens, or turns the key, opens the door, switches on the light, and there it is, sitting beside the bed, filled with scotch whiskey and a big thing of ice. And on the foot of the bed are two beautiful women. He sits there and looks at the scene for a minute, and he says, well... He said, I started going to AA and I asked them what I had to do to stay sober and be happy. And they told me I had to quit drinking and change everything I'm doing. So I can't drink that whiskey. And one of you girls is going to have to leave. That's the peculiar mental twist. Now we're going to look at what's behind the peculiar mental twist. I love that story. Michael? Now follow what I've read about what Silkworth wrote and what Wilson wrote. Alcoholism. Stanley Getlow calls this disease sedativism. The American Medical Association defined this as a disease in 1955. We defined drug addiction as a disease in 1987. Now what Getlow meant by sedativism is not that a drug is a drug is a drug. What he meant by that, which we sometimes very cavalierly say, 
Because if you understand the neuropharmacology of drugs and alcohol, you know they work at various places in the brain and they are not necessarily identical. And there are some peculiarities of each drug that must be dealt with with their peculiarities. The spiritual solution is essential, but they must be dealt with in their individual terms or you're going to have some problems. But what he meant by that is the alcoholic will not be able to process mood-altering medication like a normal person. We just don't process mood-altering medication like a normal person. Two stories, very personal. My history is I grew up in a home where there was no alcohol, no drugs. My grandfather died drinking lye water in the Mayfield City Jail. My mother was what was known then as, or what is known today as an adult child, and I'm not getting into that except she was not an alcoholic. But like the big book tells us, if you're born and raised around one of us, or if you live with one of us, you get neurotic, and mother was neurotic. Now, I grew up in a home where there was no alcohol, no drugs, was a perfect student, started taking amphetamine. My freshman year in medical school was stoned on it almost immediately. Two weeks before graduation, I was kicked out of medical school. I was out for a year and a half to two years with, under intensive psychiatric therapy, did not take drugs, got back to medical school, was back on amphetamine immediately. My classmates enabled me. They took me home, uh, put me to bed. My wife enabled me. I called my people at school said I had the flu. They knew better, but they didn't do anything with me. They didn't know what to do. They'd given it their best shot. Between 64 and 67, I was, as I say, an I lady of peace, strapped down IV fluid straight jackets. Went to the Army in 68 and 67. They almost put me in Leavenworth one year into the Army because they came down and said, Burns, are you taking the amphetamine? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, if you don't quit, we're going to put you in Leavenworth. So I quit. <laughs> now, once they explained it to me, I quit, you understand. The deal was I still had the choice to quit. Came home in 69, got back on amphetamine in 1970. I had a gallbladder attack. They took it out. And two members of the board of licensure. Uh, my internist and my surgeon came down beside my bed in 1970 in Methodist Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. We prayed together. They said, Burns, please, please quit taking the amphetamine, and I quit. My last amphetamine was 1970. Then I started drinking. <laughs> for, four, for four years, I did not drink alcoholically. I might get drunk, I might stay sober, but it was not an obsession. I never thought about it. Next three years, I drank alcoholically. If you didn't drink, we weren't buddies. If restaurants didn't serve alcohol, I didn't go. I knew exactly how much I could drink and go wherever I wanted to go and exactly what it would do. I didn't get drunk as often, but every moment of every day was an obsession with alcohol. What time will I get out of the office so I can drink? What days will I not go in so I can drink that day? Every thought. Gettlow says if you want to diagnose an alcoholic, say if you've got an alcohol problem, if you say no, I can control it, then you've got an alcohol problem. Because if I told you tonight I went in here at this restaurant and I limited my celery and take the four celery sticks, you'd say, my God, the man's got a celery problem. Not a damn one of you worrying about how much celery you have now, right? The last year I drank addictively. I drank a quart of whiskey a night. I told myself I wasn't an alcoholic because I never drank in my office. Now, I'm going to stop my story right there. Many of you have heard the rest of my story, and, and I'm not going to tell it tonight because it's not part of this particular presentation. Obviously, I ended up in AA after putting the shotgun out of my mouth. Part of this story that's important is I took amphetamine for 12 years and damn near killed me. No alcohol. I drank alcohol for eight years with no other drug and damn near killed me. The alcoholic will not process mood-altering drugs like a normal person. And that's extremely critical in the treatment of alcoholics because as doctors sometimes still have a tendency to say, they feel that alcoholism is a valium deficiency. <laughs> now, that's not a cutesy play for the audience statement. Unfortunately, it's still true, only the drugs have changed. I'm not saying people shouldn't take drugs. I'm saying they basically need to go to people who know this disease, who can make the proper diagnosis. And I will tell you, as an addictionologist who's a physician, 
who's in recovery had knowledge from the sewer to the penthouse about this disease. You don't make a dual diagnosis for the first two years of recovery without a psychotic break. Because none of us can stir pee, stir poop with a spoon or pour pee out of a boot for two years because we got sawdust for brains. I'm going to show you why. Okay? <laughs> All right? Please stay with me. Read Wilson's story. The first year, almost the first two years, racked with waves of self-pity and resentment. If he could pull it even further, he said, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't remember anything. I didn't know how to find my car. And all the things that happened, it certainly happened to me for almost two years. So the alcoholic will not be able to process mood-altering medicine. Second story, very powerful. Three months ago, I had a heart attack. I damn near died. For the month and a half prior to that, I'd had pancreatitis, liver dysfunction, and a thing they ended up calling irritable bowel syndrome because there was no other way to know what the diagnosis was. I've been put to sleep three times with tubes stuck down my throat and up my butt to figure out what to do for me. And all this was necessary. I've been put to sleep three times with drugs that were necessary, but they don't play right in my head, right? At the end of that month and a half with no relief from my GI tract pain, I had a heart attack. I got to the hospital and they had to run special medicine in my heart to, to dissolve the clot. After they had dissolved the clot, I went into two bouts of ventricular fibrillation, two bouts of ventricular fibrillation, which means my heart started acting real crazy, and they had to put electric paddles on my chest to keep me alive. Then they took me to the floor and they catheterized me two, two, uh, three days later. Now, during that entire period of time, <laughs> during that entire period of, period of time, they uh, had to give me medication, which they should have given me. It was to take my head out of that hospital room because I was almost beside myself at that point in time, just with the pain, with the anxiety, and with two and a half months of being beat to death. Okay? I knew I was going to get addicted to that medication. I did not tell them not to give it to me, nor would I ever tell them not to give it to me because they were in charge of saving my life. What I did do was call an addictionologist and a person who's knowledgeable about alcoholism and about drugs who would take care of me while they gave me the medicine. When I came out of the hospital, he gave my wife, who's in, she's in AA, he, he gave my wife these pills to taper me off on over the next seven days, 17 years of recovery. I don't compare my program to any of your program, but I wouldn't trade it with anybody. So don't talk to me about not having a spiritual program or not being dedicated four and five meetings a week and working with people till I bleed and they bleed and we cry and laugh together. Don't tell me I don't have that. Because number one, the ones of pe people who know me know I do, and the people who don't know me don't have the right to say it. And the reason I say that's not defiantly, because I want to know, that, I want you to know the type of alcoholic that I am, one devoted to recovery and to this program. And I went home, and my wife had this, this, this tells you the power of this disease, bodily different. My wife took the medication and started giving me the medication, four pills the first day, four pills the second day, four pills the third day. You want to click this mic in? Let's go. Let's go. Is this getting on y'all's nerves? Okay. See if we... Okay. Bring it up. Like this? Okay. Is this, this, is this working too? That's not working? This is working? 
Well, let's start over now. Let me tell you the joke. Taylor fills the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, tapering the fields. I'm fine until they get to the sixth day when the fields have come down to a certain strength and every one of those memories of the paddles on my chest, the tubes down my throat, all the things that are there that I'll talk about in this disease flooded over me, including the blocked memory. And I walked right over to my wife's purse and she's sitting there as close as that glass and opened her purse take out the medicine and there are 12 pills in there and I took them off. Somebody said, were you doing it to kill yourself? And I said, no, I was doing it because I knew it would take that many to work. She looked, she said, she looked at me and said, Burns, what are you doing? And I said, Casey, these pills are messing me up and as soon as I get them all taken, I won't have to take anymore. <laughs> See, I don't remember that statement. What I do remember is going over and sitting on the foot of the bed and saying, these pills will wear off in the morning. And I'll have to write a prescription. And I knew I was hooked. That's when the whole basic net that we tell each other to do, love each other, share with each other, have a network around us. We called the addictionologist. He admitted me to the hospital and tapered me in the hospital under controlled conditions for the next six days. When that first pill is taken, all bets are off. It's not a level playing field anymore because we are physically different. The alcoholic will not be able to process mood altering medication like a normal person. Next one. Michael. Michael. Thank you. This disease is chronic, progressive, fatal, and treatable. Chronic. There is no known cure. There is treatment. No known cure. Progressive, two forms of progressive nature of alcoholism. One was what Dr. Jelnick described in the late seven, in the late 30s and early 40s. Seven and a half year mean average of drinking, crisis, bottom, shotgun in the mouth, three and a half year mean average back to where the person appears normal. Now let me tell you where alcohol is concerned and, and the whole disease of alcoholism, we're playing two sandwiches short of a picnic. We may look like those people out there, but we're not like those people. Now I've come to know it's our job to live in their world on their world's terms. They don't have to understand us. But any alcoholic who says, I'm a poor suffering alcoholic, I get to park in a handicap zone, hasn't been in recovery very long. Okay? But the deal is we are not, we are not like those people. And I'm going to show you why we're not. And it's our job to deal with that. The other form of the progressive nature of alcoholism is anecdotal and experiential. It's what we see in these rooms with each other. There is no answer, no known answer to date for why this is true. If I start drinking today, within a matter of a few days to a few weeks to a few months, you will see almost a Steven Spielberg deterioration in me as though I had never quit drinking. Change physically in the skin, texture of the skin. There are many of us in this room who have made 12-step calls, unfortunately, on people with 25 and 30 years recovery. Most of those people simply don't make it back. It's as though something continues to go on in our brain, and we have some windows into that medically. We know it's a fact, and we challenge the scientists long before they began the research what is different in us. That means when we go back to drinking, it's as though we never quit. The judgment goes, physically we change, medically we change almost incredibly, even in the sensitivity of the organ systems. Fatal, this disease is 100% fatal if not treated. If you consider murders and, and suicides and car wrecks in addition to pancreatitis and hepatitis and 
all the other addresses that go with it, 100% safe, treatable. In the Journal of the American Medical Association, Doug Calvert has treated approximately 4,000 physicians and approximately 4,000 straight people. So it says, these people are treated correctly. The operative word is correctly. There's a 90% chance of recovery. Physicians. With the normal population, 70%. When I read that article, I thought, my God, it's true. Physicians are superior, right? <laughs> Physicians are superior. No, we just have such an incredible club. There's a good chance I'm going to have to leave the conference tomorrow. And the reason is because I'm chairman of the Impaired Physicians for the state of Kentucky. We have a physician in far western Kentucky that just found it necessary to go into the operating room drunk this morning. And they call me, and I'm going to check in the morning and see where he is in his detox procedure, and it may be that I'm going to have to go down there. And I told Bob that earlier tonight. And if I do have to leave, it's because I'm doing what we're trained to do, is help another alcoholic. In this case, the way I help this doctor, this doctor is I will go down to him, and the message will be clear. I love you. I'm offering you hope. And if he does like most physicians, he's going to say, thank you. But I'm not going to do it anymore. And we're going to say, that's good, but you need treatment. And if he says, I'm not going into treatment, then I have to give him the message. Because it's the true message. You either go into treatment or you lose your license. And under those conditions, thank God, we can reach most physicians. <laughs> It, it's kind of like if you don't quit using the amphetamine, we're going to put you in Leavenworth type deal, you know? <laughs> and the joy in this is that because of holding the attention, and, un, and unfortunately most physicians are fortunate for you people who are patients, most physicians get into treatment long before they've hit their crisis or bottom where there's a shotgun in their mouth. So we have to, not all of them, but we have to hold their attention with that kind of reality. And we know that if they're held in that particular position with that kind of reality and the program is structured, then they will recover, and they'll recover spiritually. What we have also found is that when we recover to a certain point spiritually, we have added knowledgeable therapy. And Wilson was very specific in the big book about how that's very appropriate. Uh, next slide, honey. This disease is not a simple disease. It's a simple solution. Not easy, but simple. Wilson talked about that. that this, this, this solution is simple, but not easy. It requires the destruction of self-centeredness. To understand this total disease, we must look at the biological, the psychological, and the societal issues. Michael? It's going to dawn on him before it's over to move his chair, but right now I'm just having fun. Watching the <laughs> I, know this, I know this young man. He has a tremendous program. Right now he's working under a handicap. <laughs> this is the societal issues of this disease. Uh, we live in a society which not only condones drinking, it promotes it. This talk is not against alcohol. The Jews call alcohol the gift of God that gladdens the hearts of men. But we do live in a society which not only condones it, it promotes it. When I finish this talk, you'll have a construct of an alcoholic. The first part of this construct is we live in a society that says it's better to drink. They simply state, it says life is good, but what makes it better drinking? Look at our advertising. Here it is for the macho man. 
Here they three guys coming down this gang plank. They're coming to the end of the of the, of the uh, wharf. It's three o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. They got their decoys. They got their guns. They got their oars. They got everything in there. They got a six pack of beer in the boat. They're looking back at this cabin here. These three beautiful women all waving goodbye to them. Now it's obviously a male chauvinistic commercial because these are beautiful women and they're too dumb to talk. And they're sitting here waving goodbye to these guys and says it don't get no better than this, right? Well, I'm a goose hunter, and my wife looked at that, and she said, my God, that's a dumb commercial. And I said, yeah, when I was drinking, I didn't hunt. When I was hunting, I didn't drink. She said, no. She said, if you think I'm going to stand there at 3 in the morning and wave goodbye to you, sorry, but while you're getting in the boat, she's off for me. But the deal is, they're going to have fun, but they're going to have to drink to do it. Now, here's the one I love it for the team. These guys running around inside the inside the, the locker room, and there's a six-pack of beer on the end of the bench, and they got their arms around each other. And, no, that's not that commercial. They don't have their arms around each other kind of thing. There's some locker rooms that do it in that particular one. They didn't. They're all running around in the locker room. You know, it's got this six-pack of beer on the bench. It says, let's do it for the team, and guys will kill to be on the team. You know, here's the yuppie commercial. This good-looking 25-year-old gal with her arm around this good-looking 25-year-old guy, and it's a totally great commercial. And they're moving away from the camera, and her arm is a cold black bottle of Cavassier, and it says, are they going to have fun tonight? Well, the women, they don't let you off either. It's chauvinistic, but it, it's effective. Beautiful woman. Long black gown, long neck, glass. The bubbles come up in the glass. Forty-story penthouse apartment. It's twilight and the city twinkles below her. It says, for the woman who can have everything. <laughs> the one that really rings my chimes is these about 30 or 40 good-looking 25-year-old bronzed young girls and young men running out to this burlap mound. They take off the burlap and it's a seaplane. They go up in the plane and they come down and land in this azure lagoon. They get out and all the guys have this case of beer on their shoulders. And that night this gal sleekily and very slyly, you know, dances behind this sheet. And I mean to tell you, it's just wonderful. Next day shows her walking in the surf with the seaplane behind her azure lagoon, bottle of beer in her hand says they don't ever have to go back. They should have shown me at the end of my drinking night, walking in the mud of the Ohio River with a busted beer can in my right hand, hoping to God that there weren't any bridesmaids, you know. <laughs> That's it. But no, life is good, but what makes it better? We live in a society where there's peer pressure every day. I've been fortunate to travel the whole Jefferson County school system over the years and talk to the kids between the fifth grade and high school. I relate to the ones that get along with the ones in the fifth and sixth grade real well. My wife says it's because of my arrested emotional development. She's probably right. But they trust me and I trust them. And I go back and see this little girl. They call me on, been snorting coke, 13 years old. Everyone asked her where she got it. I said, why did she do it? She said, well, Sarah Jane, who gave her the coke, said, if I didn't do this, I'd be all of these four-letter nouns and adjectives that we say or we don't say, don't want to hear us call, and it's ugly. I built an image of Burns Brady before I went to treatment of a womanizing, athletic, whiskey-drinking, sports car-driving, real suave SOB. Inside was this little boy that was screaming, don't find me out, please don't find me out. And when I came back from treatment, I mean, I was whipped. I went over to the club where I belonged for a board of directors meeting after about two months, and I walked in, this young man came up to me who had not seen me since I'd been off treatment. He had heard about me because I built an image that I wanted everybody to hear, right? He came up to me with a martini in each hand, and he said, Here, you're Burns Brady. Have one of these martinis and talk to me. And I said, Well, I'll talk to you, but I can't have the martini. He said, No, I've heard about you. You have the martini. I said, I can't have the martini. He said, Well, why won't you drink the martini? I said, Because I'm an alcoholic. He looked at me and said, Oh, well, congratulations. See, they don't know what to do with us out there in the real world, right? But the real message is I wanted that 
drink. Not because I wanted the whiskey that I wanted to feel a part of and I didn't want to feel removed from and I didn't want to feel judged. And that's the society we live in. Right, wrong, or indifferent? That's not the issue. The issue is that's a reality. For 90% of the Americans in this country, we will take a drink because that's what 90% of this country does. Okay? Next. Thank you. The psychological components of this disease, number one, alcoholic personality. There is no such thing as an alcoholic personality. You run MMPIs on all alcoholics, you'll never find a normal one, but you won't find a consistent pattern. It'd be great if we could. We could run MMPIs on everybody as soon as they're old enough to pick to take one and say, you're drunk, you won't be, you won't be, you won't be, you will be, you will be, you don't, you don't, you don't. That's not the way it works. There is no such thing as an alcoholic personality. Mental illness, there's no more mental illness in the alcoholic population than there is in the normal population. Three to eight percent of the normal population will have significant psychotic illness, schizophrenia and bipolar illness, and those must be treated with medication. And those of us in AA who don't have medical license need to quit practicing medicine and, t- and quit telling those people to come off their medicine because there's no way you can treat their alcoholism if you don't do that. fact of the matter is, no more mental illness than alcoholism and alcoholic than the normal population. But here's the hooker, and it's a big hooker. The affective disorders. Research has shown that 70 to 90 percent of alcoholics will have significant affective disorders. Those are mood disorders divided into anxiety and non-psychotic depression. As a part, listen to this, as a part of our primary diagnosis of alcoholism, not as a dual diagnosis, not as a secondary diagnosis, and not as a singular primary diagnosis. Alcoholism is the diagnosis, and contained within that diagnosis are affective disorders. Okay, affective disorders. How do we divide those? Anxiety and non-psychotic depression. What are the anxiety disorders? Obsessive-compulsive disorder. Post-traumatic syndrome. Post-traumatic stress disorders. Agoraphobic disorders. Panic disorders. It has been, by most studies, agreed upon today that somewhere between 60 and 80 percent, conservatively 60, Top scale, 80% of all children in alcoholic homes will be molested sexually. And if that's not dealt with in recovery in the alcoholic or in anybody, but especially in the alcoholic, you've got a major post-traumatic stress syndrome, and these people will go back that. And let me tell you, I'm not complicating the situation. I'm telling you what must be dealt with. And prayer is absolutely essential, but there will be a program of action that will follow it in addition to, not in lieu of, Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? You with me? You with me? Stay with me, okay? Those of you who are asleep, just keep your ears open because here it comes. But to ignore the fact, where did Wilson get his irritable, restless, or Silkworth, irritable, restless, discontented? He's talking about those of us who are sitting in this room right now that are going, just like that, and that's the way we are, you know? That's just the way we are. Whap, 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 whap. I told I told Don today, I said, Don, I'm not going to change anything about the solution you're going to talk about. I'm just going to give enough information to let you understand why you act like an asshole about three quarters of the time. You know? <laughs> but that's where it is. Because we're going to have to deal with that on a daily basis and a, and a spiritual reprieve. And I'll get to that as to exactly what science defines as a spiritual, as a spiritual condition and a maintenance of it. Approximately three years ago, in Atlanta, there was a study done on alcoholics, and they stated approximately 30 to 50 percent of all adult male alcoholics, all adult male alcoholics will have a form of attention deficit disorder, residual type. Attention deficit disorder, residual type. 
The study that's now being done says as many as 60 to 80 percent of a recently been allocated approximately $20 million by the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse to study attention deficit disorder and female alcoholism, which we've not done to that depth before, but it's obvious we need to do that. Now, let us look at what attention deficit disorder, what we know about it. Approximately 10 years ago, we said attention deficit disorder occurred at birth and was out of the way by the time they were teenagers. Adults didn't have it. They'd never been to many AA meetings, had they? <laughs> that adults didn't have it. We knew that it was a part of the brain chemistry in a piece of chemistry called dopamine. So what did we prescribe? Ritalin. For those who are diagnosed correctly by people who know how to make the diagnosis. I'm just talking about any child with attention deficit disorder. What does Ritalin do? It improves the action of dopamine. What does amphetamine do? It improves the action of dopamine. What was amphetamine in me? It calmed me down because I'm a classic attention deficit disorder. When I took amphetamine, it didn't stimulate me. I could take it and go to sleep. We think now that probably 60 to 70 percent of all cocaine addicts are treating a form of attention deficit disorder. The study has not been there to prove it, but we know it must be happening because what cocaine does is enhance the action of dopamine. Same thing Ritalin did, same thing amphetamine did, and we know these people are almost certainly treating a form of attention deficit disorder. More studies to come, but a major breakthrough, because we now know this goes on into adulthood, and we know from the tests that are being done that occurs probably in 50 to 70 percent of adult male alcoholics. I walked in, we have, I go to five meetings a week. Four of the meetings are regular AA meetings. The Monday night meeting is a health professionals meeting. I walked into that meeting on Monday night about two years ago, and I heard, as I walked in, I heard, some, I was about 15 minutes late, heard some guy on the other side of the room say, if I had a gun, I'd have shot that son of a bitch. I said, what's wrong with you? And he said, oh, I was coming out of the hospital, and said, I got to the stoplight, and it was red, and I stopped, and I was thinking about some surgery I'd done that night, and it turned green, and this guy behind me started honking the horn, and if I had a gun, I'd have shot the SOB. Everybody in the room going, yeah, I'd have shot him too, I'd have shot him too. <laughs> Now, the fellow who was talking happens to be one of the leading cardiac surgeons in the city of Louisville. <laughs> I'd let him operate on my heart right now. In fact, he was the one I was going to ask to operate on my heart if it had to be done. I won't let him drive my car, but I won't let him operate on my heart. <laughs> he's just not good at driving. He's great at cutting. <laughs> Once again, we're looking at the composite of what Silkworth had seen in approximately 10,000 alcoholics was irritable, restless, and discontented. Okay? Stanley Gutlow and Lynn Henneke. Lynn Henneke is a clinical psychologist in the middle 70s, studied approximately 500 alcoholics. This paper was presented at CCAD, Southeastern Conference on Alcoholism and Drug Addiction, in 1978. Henneke had come back to Gutlow and said, I found in this study of these alcoholics that every alcoholic has a poor identification with a parent of the same sex. Gettlow, who thinks that Freud is a cuss word, went back, as any good scientist would do, and reviewed his treatment patterns since 1953, and he presented this paper to 1,500 professionals. He said, I'm telling you people, it's there. Every alcoholic has a poor identification with a parent of the same sex. He said, they will almost invariably present as having a conflict with a parent of the opposite sex. But when the dust settles, it will be a conflict with a parent of the same sex. And I'm sitting in an audience with one year of sobriety, and I'm thinking, man, I have trouble with that. Because my daddy's a neat man, and my daddy died two years ago, and he died one of the neatest people I've ever known. 
And I'm sitting there listening to that, and I thought, my daddy's a neat man. I just don't, I don't understand, but I've got to find out. So I went up to Dr. Detlow, and I said, please help me. My daddy's a neat man. What does this mean? He said, tell me about your life. My life was simple. I was born very poor. My daddy had two jobs until I was 10 years old. He went to work in the morning before I got up. He came home in the evening after I'd gone to bed. I saw my daddy for three hours on Sunday morning at church. My mother raised me. I'm real grateful for that because she brought into me a sensitivity that I find very, very prevalent in women and difficult to reach in men. It can be done, but has to be teased out very gradually and with a lot of trust. Have to shave the hair off our legs so we can get down to it, you know? <laughs> but my mama raised me. But let me tell you how that impacted this whole composite I'm presenting to you. And my daddy, when I was four years old, he took me to a football game. He took me up at the halftime to the bathroom, and I walked into the men's restroom and sat out on the commode, and Daddy walked in and looked at me and said, Burns Mack, what are you doing? I said, I'm peeing. He said, well, why don't you use that? And he pointed to the latrine. I'd never seen one. My mama took me to public restrooms, and she took me into women's restroom, and so I'd never seen a latrine. My Daddy said, well, I'm going to have to start taking you to more football games. But the real message is, where do we learn our coping skills? We learn them from emulating people of the same sex. Why do big brothers and big sisters work so well? It's a responsible adult with a consistent pattern of living taking a child of the same sex and teaching them coping skills. Second part of the construct, all alcoholics will have marginal to compromised coping skills. Where do we learn them most effectively when we get sober? Following a 12-step process for a spiritual solution to living problems with a sponsor, preferably of the same sex. See, what Wilson put together was not haphazard. It was very pragmatic, and now we're beginning to plug in some of the reasons that he did what he did, and they were not pie in the sky. They are very effective mechanisms to deal with some very obvious and some very definite problems. The biological component of this disease, and this is where it really gets excited. Okay, next one. We're going to look at genetics and biochemistry. Let's look at the genetics. Between 1930 and 19, and, I'm sorry, between 1980 and 1987, there were 300 papers written in this country alone, and seven, 300 studies and 700 papers written, which stated irrefutably and replicably that the number one predisposing factor to whether a person would be an alcoholic is does he have alcoholic kinfolks. They described them as first or primary relationships, which would be a first cousin, mother, father, uh, aunt and uncle, uh, and or grandparents. Kenneth Bloom of the University of Texas reported three years ago on the 11th chromosome, a gene allele for dopamine, a neurotransmitter in the brain, which was present in 77% of alcoholics, absent in 72% of non-alcoholics. Three studies have been done since that time, two replicating his study, one stating they could not replicate his study. What we did know that on adoption studies done between 1935 and 1950 in three different Scandinavian countries, utilizing 2,000 adoptee studies and 500 concordant twins, that if the child had one or one parent, one or one grandparent, or one primary relative that was an alcoholic, the chances of that child being an alcoholic were four times greater than the normal population, whether that child was raised in that alcoholic home or not. David Owens in St. Louis says if one parent's an alcoholic, the chances of that child being an alcoholic are forty-five percent. If both parents are alcoholic, the chances of that child being an alcoholic are ninety-four percent, whether that child's raised in the home or not. See Robert Cloninger in St. Louis and Donald Goodwin at the University of Kansas did their own studies, revisit the Scandinavian studies, and defined two forms of genetic alcoholism. One is called highly heritable or type 2, that's HH. The other is mildew limited or type 1, that's ML. 
The highly heritable is seen nine times more frequently in male offspring of male alcoholics, three times more frequently in female offspring of male alcoholics. These kids are alcoholic from the first drink. They explode. I've treated a seven-and-a-half-year-old alcoholic. Both of my children were alcoholic by the time they were 12. They literally do not lose the amount, the ability to control the amount that they drink because they may not drink that often, but they lose the ability to have any form of societally responsible behavior. When they do drink, they become little animals. An instant we had, and, and we're seeing this in the young kids who come in. They don't have any coping skills. They're just like any other adolescent until they drink, and then you ain't got enough chain to hold them down, you know? And but thank God we're here as role models. There was an incident in eastern Jefferson County where someone reported the back windows of 500 cars shot out over a weekend. Someone said to me, what do you think is going on? I said, you've got at least one alcoholic in a car. <laughs> and I, and, and I said, one alcoholic teenager. And he said, why is that? And I said, because that's what they'll do. And they said, well, why, why couldn't it just be a pissed off adolescent? And I said, because they'll shoot the back windows out of about 25 cars and get bored. But that little alcoholic, as long as he's got a can of beer and a BB gun, he's just going to keep going. Wow, 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 wow. You know what I The treatment for these children varies from the regular treatment in that these children must be raised in a completely drug-free, chemically-free environment. If insurance will allow it, we have to take them, put them in some sort of cloistered, drug-free cocoon for one to three years. You say, why take them out of their home? Well, most of the time their homes are not that clean. But even if they are, those kids are going to spend relatively about a fourth of the time in the home and three-fourths of the time on the school bus in the hallways of their school at the local hamburger joint, and there's alcohol and drugs in every one of those places, and we're asking them to drink responsibly? Push me out of the plane and tell me to fly. Right? It ain't going to happen. I don't give a damn how bad I want to fly. I'm going to flap like an idiot, but I'm going to hit the ground like a bomb, you know? And these kids can't drink responsibly. They can't drink at all. And yet they're in an environment which not only condones it, it promotes it. Second form of uh, alcoholism is type 1. That's nearly limited. That's what Gelman talked about, the seven and a half year mean average down to the crisis. This is adult alcoholism. These people will lose the ability to control the amount that they drink, but they will stay societally responsible for the bitter end. Quart of whiskey a night, but I never drank in my office. Quart of whiskey a night, but I never drank in my office. Okay, that's adult. See more frequently in women than in men, beginning usually in the third decade of life or death. Further validation of the genetic aspect of alcoholism is the blood platelets. If I take the platelet up, blood platelet is, a, is in the blood. It has to do if I cut myself. There are multiple steps to cause that blood to coagulate. One of those steps is an ingredient in the blood called a platelet. cousin to a white cell or a red cell. It's called a platelet. If we take the blood platelet of an alcoholic subjected to alcohol, the, uh, there are three enzymatic processes that monoamine oxidase, ventilates like it doesn't matter what the names are. Three enzymatic processes that we can measure that break down immediately. We can take the blood platelet of an offspring of an alcoholic, that offspring never having been subjected to alcohol, subject his platelets to alcohol, and in 10% of the cases we will see the same breakdown. It's a perfect test. It is a perfect screening test. Validates irrefutably that it's a genetic predisposition. This test is not available because we don't know what to do with it genetically. We don't know what to do with it ethically nor legally. If you've got a son who wants to go to medical school, we test his platelets and they test positive. Do we let him into school? Do we refuse him? Do we put him into treatment? He's never had a drink. Or do we put you, the whole family, into treatment? What do we do? You know? We don't know what to do with him yet. 
In this presentation, it further validates the genetic component of the predisposition uh, of alcoholism. Get low and Hennessy, the number one thing they found in their study is Get low says, I have found that all alcoholics are stimulus augmenters. We blow everything out of proportion. We've known for years that if we run brain waves on the alcoholic, we'll just see a screw up of the P3 and low amplitude alpha waves. These are the brain waves that have to do with the cognitive ability to process stress. We've known for years that the alcoholic doesn't process stress as well as normal people, i.e. affective mood disorders, i.e. attention deficit disorders, i.e. irritable restless discontented, right? Do not process stress. Gedlow says, every alcoholic, and I read that segment which says we drink for the effect, every alcoholic who ever came into his office since 53, he asked him, why do you drink? Some of us will say we like the way it tastes. Every one of us will say we like the way it makes us feel. We like the way it makes us feel. He said, you know what we have to find out about these people is what do they feel like before they drink. You take a normal person and let them drink, they get a certain feeling. They don't want any more of it. You give it to one of us and we think, my God, we found the answer to all of life's problems. We've never felt better, right? So he says, what we have to do is find out what do they feel like before they drink. In the early 50s, there were a series of studies done by a fellow named Isbell. He was studying behavior modification in mice. He had them in a cage, and he was in there foraging for whatever the hell mice forage for in a cage, you know. And he had a probe stuck down in the mouse's brain that happened to be in the base of the brain in the limbic system where all feeling is located. I won't get into the neurochemistry, not because you're not bright enough to understand it, but it would take me about 45 minutes for me to understand it and explain it to you. But it was down in the limbic system. And this mouse would run around this cage, he'd stimulate the mouse's brain, the mouse would stop. He'd quit, the mouse would go off, he'd pop him again, he'd go back to that same spot. He'd quit, and he'd go off, he'd pop him again, he'd go back to that same spot. And he just kept popping that mouse and popping that mouse till the mouse died. He died in respiratory arrest. The scientist said, it looks like drug overdoses. Someone said, you know, I wonder if there's a compound in the brain that we're stimulating that looks so much like morphine that it kills like morphine. We were unable to do anything with that until the middle 70s when we could radioactively tag morphine, inject it into the brain, and Geiger count the human brain. And we found that morphine went to receptor sites in the brain every time. Same locations. Every brain. Morphine went to receptor sites. Scientist says if exogenous morphine, that given outside the body, goes to receptor sites in the brain, then the brain must make a compound inside itself identical to morphine. Because you don't have boat docks without boats, do you? So the whole series of studies began, Michael. The morphine-like substances in the human brain. The first group we found were beta endorphins. You've heard the runner's high. You've heard of endorphins. The runner's just coming along, feeling great, thinks he can't go anywhere. Bam! He goes to a plateau and he's floating. We take non-alcoholics, put them in a dentist chair, don't give them any anesthesia and grind on their teeth. Within 30 seconds, they can tolerate it. Not because they're spiritual giants, but because their brain is making a compound identical to morphine. Studies done in the Scandinavian countries and in Russia have proved conclusively in animals and in post-mortem humans that there is a significant deficiency in beta-endorphin in the alcoholic brain, and there is a significant deficiency of beta-endorphin in the offspring of alcoholics who have never been exposed to alcohol. Now, that study's only been done in humans because we've had few offspring of alcoholics who are willing to sacrifice their brain just yet. We're hoping they're going to step up and be counted next month, but don't wait on it. 
But the deal is we found a consistent deficiency in beta endorphin. That's the first feel-good compound in the brain. Bloom of uh, chromosome fame broke down the endorphins in the shorter amino acid chains called endocaphalins. There are two forms, leucine and methionine. Methionine endocaphalin is as powerful a feel-good compound as beta endorphin. And in studies done in humans and in postmortem humans and in animals, we have found a consistent deficiency in methionine and caffeine in the alcoholic brain and in the offspring of alcoholics who've never been exposed to alcohol. Second major feel-good compound. Michael? T.K. Lee at the University of Indiana began to work on these three neurotransmitters. He found serotonin was sufficient consistently in alcoholics and the offspring of alcoholics who've never been exposed to alcohol. You've heard of serotonin because you've heard of Prozac. What Prozac does is it blocks the reuptake of serotonin. Huge amounts build up in the neurotransmitter space in the brain, and we feel better. The third major feel-good compound that we don't have to the same degree that other people have. You know what the noise is that those people out there in the real world hear? They hear, uh... You know what you and I hear? Just like that, every minute of every day. Hey, B, C, D, E, here we go, you know. What did I miss C? Get back to C. My God, I left A. What's it going on today? You know, here we go again. I've got three wives in three different towns. Wonder if I can get a fourth. You know, and there we are. I don't like my new Buick. I need a new airplane. And there we are, you know. And that's it, because we don't hear the same damn noise. We don't hear it. We have just looked at the obsession to drink, and never, never forget this. The obsession for the alcoholic to drink is real simple. It's for relief of the noise. It stops the noise. I found three things. I found four things that will stop my noise. Amphetamine. Alcohol. Sex. And Alcoholics Anonymous. AA works better than any of them. It just takes a little longer. And i got to tell you, they hadn't put me in jail one time for going to AA meetings. They put me in jail for every damn one of those others. And I thought, how was I to know that was a policewoman? I just wanted to give her $50 for the evening. You know? I swear to God, I only did it one time and they put me in jail. Can you believe that? <laughs> now let's look at what happens to the alcoholic when we drink. Alcoholics metabolize acid, aldehyde, acetic acid, CO2, and water. That occurs in the liver and in the brain. Since this overhead has been prepared, we know that the female alcoholic under genetic predisposition is sufficient alcohol dehydrogenase. Big Group describes it, medical science has acknowledged for years that the female alcoholic is ripped much more severely, much more quickly than the male alcoholic physically. We did not know why until we discovered she is deficient under genetic predisposition in the compound that breaks down alcohol. We've even had to go back and refigure all of our steady state metabolism of alcohol, especially in the alcoholic female. All alcoholics build up excessive amounts of acid aldehyde because under genetic predisposition, we are deficient in acid aldehyde dehydrogenase. That's important because that's where hangovers occur. It's also the major ingredient of what we're looking at now, which is the compulsion to drink. And remember this slide, because we build up huge amounts of acid aldehyde. That's where anabuse works. Anabuse has no place except in two narrow instances in the treatment of alcoholism. It works on the basis of fear. You can't keep an alcoholic sober on fear. You can't even keep people who want to drink from drinking on antibiotics because they'll figure out how to drink around it every single time. There's a side chain when acid aldehyde builds up so much that the liver can't handle anymore, it will, it will produce a side chain called dope aldehyde. These are the famous aldehyde condensation products we're getting ready to look at. Next one, please. 
1970, there was a young lady named Davis who looked at a group of compounds called tetrahydroacylquinolones. These are metabolites of heroin and of morphine. She said they looked so much similar to the analogs of morphine that they were beginning to postulate in the early 70s that they subsequently found out in 1975 and 6 and on after that. She said, I wonder if those were injected into an animal, would it change their drinking patterns? She took a group of mice, and mice are alcohol avoided. T.K. Lee at the University of Indiana bred some special strains called P-mice, and those mice are completely alcohol avoided. They won't touch it. They won't touch it. She put a plate of alcohol in a plate of water. She put the mouse here, and the mouse would go drink the water, but would never touch the alcohol. They literally would die of dehydration and not touch the alcohol. Then she took the genetic twin of that same mouse, if they inter- intervened in the experiment before the mouse died, injected its ventricles of its brain with THIQ, and this same mouse went directly to the alcohol and drank it till it died. She then took macaque monkeys that are alcohol avoided, injected their brains with THIQ, and they died drinking three, four, and five quarts of alcohol a day. She said, what I've done is create an alcoholic animal Does it occur in humans. This is still under study and is another major study that NIAAA has taken on. But here's what she found. If she reacted dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, which is a major component of what alcohol does in the brain, reacts it with acetaldehyde, which we saw where it came from, she gets a THIQ called salsalanol. Inject that in the animal's brain, nothing happens. She reacted serotonin with acetaldehyde. That's another neurotransmitter we looked at. Produces tetrahydrobetacarbolin into the animal's brain, nothing happened. She was about ready to give up on the experiment when she actually discovered the side chain of dopaldehyde. When she reacted dopamine with dopaldehyde, she produced a tetrahydroisoquinolone called tetrahydropropabolin, or THP. You with me? When she took that, she injected that into the animal's brain, and that's what made the animal go drink the alcohol till it died. She has now discovered in post-mortem humans and in animal studies pre-mortem that the concentration of THP in the alcoholic animal and human brain is 1,200 times greater than the normal brain. That's what made that animal drink the alcohol till it died. What I'm saying is I laid on the floor of the Fontenay Apartments in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and prayed, God, don't let me get drunk today. Then I prayed, don't let me get drunk till I get home. Then I just had to say, I can't make it without getting drunk. And I thought I was a moral leper. I thought that I was just some sort of major mentally defective person. And what AA had already said and what medical science has now discovered is I was being whipped by a disease that has major physical components. I am bodily different. That's THP, 1,200 times greater. Now, if that concentration gets greater than 4,600, the compulsion leaves. Under 1,200, it doesn't exist. For all alcoholics, it's somewhere between 1,200 and 4,600. The studies are to prove what's the difference. We've just looked at the compulsion to drink. You think you can stop something that powerful? It's like I told somebody I had dinner with tonight. Not anymore than you kick me out of the plane and say, fly. They look at us and say, quit drinking. We look back and say, God, I'm trying. Honest to God, I'm trying. We've looked at the construct of an alcoholic, an individual born in a, in a world that's too loud. A world which says it's okay to drink. It even makes life better. Who has marginal to compromised coping skills, no living skills who then begins to drink because society says it's better, the noise goes away and the chemistry in the brain goes nuts. That's what Silkworth was talking about that he had seen. These people are bodily different. We are not moral lepers. We act like it. We are not mentally defective. We act like it. We are physically deficient. Dear God, let the shame drop from your eyes and off of your heads and out of your hearts. 
you don't have to be ashamed of being an alcoholic. I just have the responsibility of dealing with how I'm going to resolve the solution. And these other speakers for the rest of this weekend are going to give you that if you'd already have it. If you're sitting in this audience for the first time and you're saying, what am I? That's what you are. Are you ashamed of being diabetic? Are you ashamed of having cancer? Are you ashamed of having pneumonia? Are you ashamed of having athletes' feet? No. But you get treatment for it. Flip the next one, please. The prolonged recovery syndrome, what Wilson talked about, racked with waves of self-pity and resentment for up to two years. Retentive memory, we know this. This syndrome was described in 1978. Retentive memory for recent events will be screwed up for six months to two years, depending on the age of the individual, how long they've been drinking, how much they've been drinking, or any other drugs involved. Sleep patterns are destroyed. I used to come and say, Dear God, I can't sleep. And y'all would all say, Hell, don't worry about it. None of us ever died from lack of sleep. God, they don't understand, right? Simple problem-solving stress management. Let me look at retentive memory for recent events. When I came home from treatment, I went to church, I went to AA, and I went to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist put me in intensive cognitive therapy. And I'm not anti-psychiatry, nor am I anti-therapy. So if anybody thinks they're hearing that from me, you're not. I'm anti-ignorance. And that's what this whole deal in my life's about today, is to take my position as a physician, the knowledge I have and the experience I've experienced, and teach people with it, because it keeps me sober and it helps a lot of other people to drop the scales from their eyes. But this individual put me in intensive cognitive therapy on Tuesday. Then I would come back on Thursday to continue. When I'd come in on Thursday, I'd say, where do we start, home?" And he'd say, we're going to start where you were on Tuesday. And I'd say, I don't remember where we were on Tuesday. He'd say, you're blocking your therapy. And I'd go, oh my God, I'm a worm. I'm blocking my therapy. And I'd go into the AA meeting and I'd say, I'm blocking my therapy. I'm a worm. And the guys in the AA meeting would say, do you remember where his office was? I'd be and they'd say, well, hey, you're one up on it already. You know where it is. I used to lose my car drinking. I lost my car for the first six months sober. I would drive my car to work, get out and practice medicine, get my car, go home, drive my car to work, get out practice medicine, get the car, go home. I drove my wife's car to work six months sober, parked it, went in, practiced medicine, came out to get in my wife's car, or get it in the car, and I looked around and I started crying. I thought my car was gone. Somebody stole it. I went back in, got my partner, and I said, Dave, somebody stole my car. And he walked out and looked and said, Burns, you drove Casey's car. I said, oh, God, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> So my partners, who weren't even alcoholic, but recognized pragmatism, assigned me a parking space. And they said, when Burns leaves the office, he's going to that parking space, and if he get whatever's in it started, he's going to drive it home. <laughs> the message here is real simple. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Get up on time. Eat your breakfast. Do your meditation. Call your sponsor. Say your third step prayer, your seventh step prayer, and your eleventh step prayer. Go to work on time. See your patients. Call your sponsor. Eat your lunch. Call your sponsor. Get home in the evening. Go to the meeting. Get there 30 minutes early. Set up the ashtrays. Set up the coffee. Greet the newcomer. Give him your number. Stay 30 minutes later in the meeting. Talk to the newcomer. Go home in the evening and close your life with the eleventh step prayer. Keep it simple. Don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book. Don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book. Don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book. And eventually it will come out, trust God, clean house, help others. Keep it simple. Okay? Keep it simple. Last slide. What's the treatment? Abstinence. Once a cucumber gets pickled, it'll never be a cucumber again. 
You know, that seems intuitively obvious to us. Big book talks about it. Those people out there in society say, I wonder if we can teach them to drink successfully. In the late 70s, the Sobel husband and wife team of psychologists did a study on 25 people and published a major article which said they could return the alcoholic to successful social drinking. Every one of those people died drunk, or every one of those people died in institutions, or every one of them had to quit drinking. A miserable failure. You do not teach us to drink socially. Why in the hell would you want to try? You know? Because we'd love to be able to drink socially, right? But we're like a people, we're like people who have lost their legs. People who have lost their legs. Short term, detox. 15% of people who quit drinking abruptly go into DTs. 15% of those people die. Don't go check into the, to the days in and say you're going to quit drinking. you got a good chance of dying. Intermediate, good assessment teams. Decide when you go into AA. Just go into AA on your own. After you get the detox, the big book talks about it. People generally have to be admitted to be brought off their, off their booths. Maybe in, long-term inpatient, long-term outpatient. Working with our physicians, we try to make sure that we tailor each one of their programs the same, looking at what the intermediate steps will be, because we know what the long-term best treatment is, and that's Alcoholics Anonymous. Getlow said that they found in multiple research that the number one treatment for stimulus augmentation, following them, is improved interpersonal relationships. You know what that means? People loving people. You know what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous? We love each other back to health. We love each other back to health. Now science has said, you people have found the answer. We call it improved interpersonal relationships, the scientists. We alcoholics call it a sponsor, a home group, a big book, telephone calls, and having supper with a friend that I love very dearly tonight. People loving people. One of my greatest gratitudes is not that I'm alive today from a heart attack. It's that I have an opportunity to be back with you people. Healthy and even closer to my God than I ever thought I'd be. Thank you for loving me and for the prayers that I received during this time. And for the distinct privilege of being with you tonight to talk about something that turned Bill Wilson's life around and all. You have a hopeless disease with the power of God at your disposal and welcome home into a pleasant journey. Thank you.